Today's scripture reading is taken from the book of Acts, uh, first chapter, starting in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into the heavens, heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The word of the Lord. just want to mention another anniversary, um, because we uh, mark the birthdays, and particularly uh, Lucy's birthday. But uh, there's another anniversary that I just heard about, and so I thought I'd tell you. And that's a 20-year anniversary for Alan Irene Ferguson, but it's not a wedding anniversary. That's different. Um, it's the anniversary of, of coming to Sutherland Church. And I just thought I'd give you the details that I just heard. I didn't see... Did you hear this on Facebook? Is that where you saw it? Okay, I clearly am not social media into social media enough. Moving out to BC from Ontario? Okay, I'm sorry. I'm only going with what was reported and how you came to Sutherland Church. So you could... It, Okay, so this is what was happening 20 years ago or thereabouts. They came to go to church here, and there was a hole in the ground. So that's, that's 19 years ago or something. Anyway, 20, we're going to say 20 years ago. We're staying with that. Uh, and, and they came to go to church, and there's no church. There's just a hole in the ground. And so they thought, well, I guess we're not going to go to that church then. And there was somebody walking by, um, and that somebody happened to be Anna Meyer. Anna Porsche now, but Anna Meyer at the time. I remember because I was a youth pastor and she was a youth leader, but I didn't know that this had happened. And Anna was walking by and the Fergusons, you know, thought, well, we won't give up this easily. And so they said, excuse me, young woman. Uh, or and now I'm just, I'm, now I'm acting the story. I don't know if these are the right details. And, and Anna, being a very lovely person, yes, can I help you? And they asked, you know, do you know what's happened to this church? Do you have? And she said, actually, I do. They're building a new church here. Um, but I go to the church, and I'm walking there right now because they're meeting in a school locally. And they said, can we give you a ride? And they're, of course, they look like really nice people. And so she trusted them. And, uh, and they drove her to church, and they went to church, and here they are still. So we're just, uh, that's a fantastic little story for you to hang on to as before we turn to the uh, ascension text and happy anniversary uh the this text is one of those stories as it's been read to us by laura that sounds quite fantastical uh, and may i say and, and i don't want to you know cause doubt in your mind but i want to be honest in how we can approach texts like this at times it sounds fantastical as if it didn't really happen or as if it didn't happen this way. Jesus' followers were standing with him. He was speaking to him or to them, and then he disappeared. Like an invisibility cloak or science fiction. 
And we can lose ourselves in trying to figure out what actually happened. Because the text itself doesn't spend much or any time on saying, on justifying or describing in detail what actually happened. The text focuses somewhere else. Our series, in encounter, our summer series that we've been taking up uh, so far, and next week uh, Ken Bell will be preaching. Um, so I guess our family's traveling in, in August as well, a little bit. Not our whole family, but... Uh, Uh, So, our series so far encounters with Jesus. We have looked at, first of all, the skepticism of Nathaniel. We looked at the story of Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding feast and the expectations that were put upon Jesus by those around him. We looked at the story of Lazarus and considered in looking at that story that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. That the emphasis in that story, as it's told to us, is uh, focused upon Jesus' emotional reaction to the death of Lazarus and the grief of his family. That while he is fully divine, particularly in performing this miracle of raising Lazarus, he is fully human in literally shaking before the tomb of Lazarus. Overcome, Jesus is, with grief, but with something slightly different than grief. Well, I guess it is grief, that sense of saying, this is not the way things are supposed to be. Last week we looked at the Last Supper, but the story of the Last Supper from the account of the Gospel of John, which doesn't focus on the details of the events of the Last Supper at all, but focuses instead on what Jesus is saying to his disciples. And then after that, in John chapter 17, Jesus' prayer to the Father. Uh, In the Gospel of John, the Last Supper, as we were looking at encounters with Jesus last week, Jesus is promising the Holy Spirit the sending of the Comforter to his disciples. All of this in encounters with Jesus. And today, the Ascension. The Ascension is the... the, Oh, this was working before I tested it. The Ascension brings before our minds, what now? What now? It's going to come up. There we go. (laughs) That's all you get for a slide. (laughs) But you can see how this would, would happen, where... Disciples are standing before Jesus. They've known him for these years. They have been pretty... I, what nice word do you want to use? Dumb used to be a really bad word. Now it's kind of mild compared to some others. The disciples are at least dumbfounded in their interactions with Jesus. He's told them for years what's going to happen. They are, they're dumbfounded by the fact that he says, uh, I'm going to die. And they literally can't comprehend that he says, I'm going to raise back to life. I'm going to raise again. So they've had this kind of bewildered sense of who Jesus is. And now they're with the risen Savior. And he says to them, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And then he disappears. So that's why those words are on the screen. What now? What strikes me is that we are still living in the shadow of these words. What does it mean to you? I put this question before you. And I'm sensitive to the fact that there could be non-Christians in a group this size. What does it mean to you to live in relationship with Jesus Christ? Because there's this change in that moment where Jesus was standing with his followers and then he's gone somewhere that they can't seem to get. And so you pray, I lift up my prayers to heaven. Well, where is that? Beyond this roof? Up into that sky? Beyond this ceiling? Beyond this building? Beyond this galaxy? What does it mean for you to be in relationship with Jesus Christ? 
this will be, and again, this is the honesty of our faith, this will be a relationship unlike all other relationships in your life. And the ascension is partly why. Because Jesus is not here physically with you as he is present to the disciples from before the moment of his ascension. You will leave here and maybe go for lunch. Maybe with somebody else from here. That's a good practice, by the way. You'll leave here and go for lunch, but you're not going to go for lunch with Jesus. At least not in the same way that you're going with somebody else here. He doesn't probably get to choose the place, sushi or something else. He's not physically here with you. And yet his presence, I would say in my faith, as well as many or most here would say, Jesus is more present in my life than even those physical relationships. So what now? What does it mean? There is the reminder, and I, and I use these words, uh, actually they're from a commentary I was reading, uh, the warning to not listen to this story over literally. What would that mean? Don't take it literally. That's not what I'm saying. I believe this happened. But the warning is against over literally listening to this story. And I can describe what taking it over literally means by the reaction of the disciples themselves. Jesus ascends, disappears, he's gone, there's this cloud, that's, and they're standing there going, they're looking up, trying to find him, as if they could find him if they could climb up there somehow, or take an invention that hadn't yet come to pass. And then there are these two figures, the word we use in Christian theology is, there is a theophany, there's a presence of God in the form of an angel or a person that wasn't there before, that speaks for God. There are these two men in white robes standing there and they're saying, why are you trying to figure out where he went? And then they basically say, and this is the emphasis of the text, get on with what he told you to do. You're not going to find him by climbing the skies. That's the story of the ascension. And in a, in a sense, they're taking it over literally. We want to be gracious to them because we would likely do the same thing. What just happened? And up would be the right place to look, I suppose. Where did he go? He's up there somewhere. But now get on with things. Live as he told you to. Jesus said to these followers, you will be my witnesses. And then he named their places, the places that they would know. First of all, the places closest to them, Judea, Samaria, but then he expands it to even to the ends of the earth. Jesus is seeing these, his followers in front of him, but he's seeing also past them to you. He's speaking not only to them, he is speaking directly to them, but clearly in Jesus' mind, you, you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. Past this time. He's coming back. So I want to give you four things to remember from this story. There would be many more, but four for today. Two from the story itself. Two that will be interpretation and reflection. Every biblical text requires interpretation. Sometimes we look for what we call the plain meaning of the text, of course. But there isn't anybody who doesn't interpret Scripture. 
And you would know that if you gathered in, a, in another denomination, you'll get different emphases in another gathering in different ways. And every time you come to Scripture, you ask that the Holy Spirit would interpret this text for you, would speak to you. This is living. It's not a kind of a dead thing that you look, what's just the one thing we can get from this? And so I choose four this morning, but there would be more and different, and that's okay. The first, from an interpretation and reflection, it, basically the first two things, why... Why did the story happen this way? What might it mean? And then, the, and then the second two, so items three and four, how should this affect our lives, our thoughts, and our view of the world and our living? So what I'm saying to you is the ascension should affect the way you live and pray and consider other people in this world. And those will be the second two things we speak about. So firstly, the ascension has to do with Glory. And I've capitalized that word there on purpose. I don't think there's really a way to say glory with small letters. Moses praying, Lord, this one thing I ask now, show me your glory. How can you make glory small? Jesus in the ascension is being glorified. He's being raised to the right hand of the Father. Exalted, raised up. Colossians 3.1 He has been raised up and seated at the hand of God. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's 1 Corinthians 15. And Philippians 2, a text that many of you know. The one who humbled himself to become one of us. To take on flesh and became obedient unto death. Even death on a cross. The one who humbled himself now has a name that is above all names. Jesus Christ is exalted and glorified. That, the ascension speaks of that to us. He has not died again. He has risen again and is now glorified. Glory and glory and glory. This is portrayed in the scene by the cloud. And you could do a biblical history of looking at what a cloud would mean. The presence of God, spoken of in different ways, but the presence of God is often represented as a cloud. God's glory that fills the temple in the book of Isaiah. His very presence. And here the cloud kind of envelops the whole scene, but particularly envelops Jesus. And once Jesus is in the cloud, all of a sudden he's gone. It's terrible now that, I mean, I get it technologically and I get it marketing-wise, why uh, we have now, as soon as I say the cloud, the cloud now, and it's terrible, it means kind of the place where all your data is stored and other people can get it, something like that. It's good, right? Because now I can work on my computer on a sermon, and if it's stored in the cloud, I can go to another computer, and there it is. I can take my phone now, and music that I bought on my computer at home I could listen to right now from this. I don't understand it. I mean, it at least carries that representation. You think you don't understand that technologically, and there are some people who do, some even in our midst. That's why this is good imagery in Scripture that stays even into our contemporary time. The cloud is that, and and there's there's a, a classic Christian work by this title, the cloud of unknowing. That place, the glory of God resides there, the otherness of God 
representing not only God's glory, but our ignorance. Jesus Christ is taken up in a cloud. He is glorified. Secondly, the ascension has to do with the spiritual presence of Jesus. And this is where, uh, as a Christian, for, for me and for many of you, our faith comes into it. What had been the physical presence of Jesus one moment before, and could you say that Jesus had a spiritual presence then as well? Of course you could. But primarily what had been Jesus' physical presence has now become his spiritual presence. This is an item of faith for Christians, for sure. I, you know, we've sometimes, you could, in, in our spiritual ignorance, we can think that if only Jesus would kind of open those doors and walk in here right now, then we would all really believe and we could help other people to believe too. The trouble is that those, those physical manifestations of God, even in Scripture itself, have not long-term engendered faith. So the people going through the desert, you remember, from Egypt into the Promised Land, for a while God shows up as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, leading them literally physic- well, physically present with them in this form, much more tangible than than. Many can speak of since. But it didn't engender faith. It didn't engender spiritual maturity. If only he could be physically present with us. Well, what was the faith of the disciples like when he was physically present with them? And with the faith of others at that time. The physical presence of Jesus has become a spiritual presence And this is now for me, my faith. And I'll say it this way. And it's, of course, an invitation to any of you who don't know Jesus Christ, who haven't put your trust in him. This is where Jesus is present for me in my prayers, my life. My prayer is, Jesus, be my guide. You are my salvation. We sang it last week. Bart knows the words because I I know anytime you sing this song that Bart led us through last week or... or, um, so sing it as a congregation or as a worship leader, it, it naturally becomes a favorite. Particularly, it becomes a favorite because it engages with your faith. And it was a favorite of my grandfather. All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his faithful mercy who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divine comfort, by faith in him to dwell. And hear these words. For I know whate'er befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. This my song, through endless ages, Jesus led me all the way. His spiritual presence with me. And he will lead you too. And how could that be that he leads me in this place and he leads Daniel's friends in Nepal in such different circumstances. How could anyone do that unless their presence was a spiritual presence? His presence after the ascension is no longer physical as his disciples had known it. It is now spiritual. And I think I have St. Augustine's quote, which is a great one, I think. You ascended, it's a prayer. You ascended from before our eyes and we turned back grieving only to find you in our hearts. So third, and now these next two points are for our living. What might the ascension mean to us? Um, And uh, I didn't come up with number three there. 
I, I'm not a slogan guy. Not enough. I mean, I go and hear some people preach, um, particularly when I've been in African-American churches in the United States, um, but other times as well. Uh, um, so, some people that I know well listen to um, uh, ministers like Joel Osteen and others who always have a catchphrase or a slogan. Um, and it can be good, can be helpful. Uh, it's something that I'm not that good at, but I like this one as I came across it in, in reading some other people's uh, material, some commentaries for this. So this is the third thing to remember, the first for our living. We need to guard against what this person, and now I am calling, ascension deficit disorder. So a different kind of ADD. This is the disorder of living as if Christ had not ascended. That he ascended means this. He is coming back. He is coming back. These, these men were told this. He's coming back again. But even the sense that he is coming back is not to be used as a club or a threat or some kind of fearful thing in terms of end times thinking. You better watch it because Jesus is coming back. It's not a threat. It is to be understood that history is headed somewhere. He hasn't simply left and now you try to figure out life on your own. He left. He's left the Holy Spirit with you as your comforter and guide that you would know the spiritual presence of Jesus Christ. And He is coming back. In other words, history doesn't end with this and now you try to figure things out. What am I to make of my life? What is success for me? What if I fail? As I remember that Jesus Christ is ascended, my perspective grows past self and circumstance to remember that God is doing something in history. I become free to live a life of love as I understand that Jesus ascended but is coming back again. It's why Paul can say, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Each day now for me, every day, these three, beauty, goodness, and truth, that I get to encounter each day of my life, beauty, goodness, and truth, but understood in the light of Jesus Christ, His love for me, like no other, this love compels me and convicts me, but doesn't destroy me, convicts me unto an understanding of His love. It's so easy in our world to be cynical, downtrodden at the state of the world, and there's much reason. Just this morning, our Prime Minister went to the uh, residence of the Governor General to Rideau Hall and called what will now be the longest election campaign in Canadian history. And everybody responds with a, thanks be to God. Nope. Everybody responds with, here we go, attack ads. You know, some people saying, well, at least it's not as, as kind of, like, not as much conflict as in the United States. So I suppose so, but... So even, a lot, even along in, in, a, in this land of great blessing, where we live in a democracy, where we have rights, the cynicism and, and our kind of, that sense of being downtrodden can take over. And there can be reason for that. But when we understand that Jesus Christ has ascended and that he is coming back, that history is headed somewhere, we can be uh, 
honest about the difficulties in the world, but at the same time we're driven by hope, not despair. That's living in the light of the ascension. We need to get over our ascension deficit disorder. And finally, and this is where the biggest word is of the sermon today, uh, we've, we've spoken about this before, but I don't know that how many would remember what this word means. The ascension calls us to be an eschatological people. I want to shake my finger at you this morning, and I will say this about most. Okay, in here. You people are not eschatological enough. And you say, yeah, you're darn right, because I don't even know what that means. Or actually, I'm glad I'm not eschatological. I think I might have to go to the doctor if I was. What does it mean to be an eschatological people? And I use this uh, in, the, in the corporate sense on purpose as well, that we would be an eschatological people. I suppose it's possible to be an eschatological person, but as I tell you what eschatology means, we'll get into that. Eschatology is a word that comes up often in, in Christian seminary, in education, right, where you have theology and there are various branches of theology, the study of the Holy Spirit, uh, the study of, uh, well, I'll, we'll leave it at that. But eschatology is one of those branches that w- which has to do with the study of the end of times, the completion of things. But I want to be very careful with this because in some branches of the church, and ours is one of those, okay? So, and I'm always nervous when I, actually, I'm, I, I guess I'm not nervous enough because if I was really nervous, I wouldn't do it. But I'll give you an example from our own background as this church is, was founded uh, by a group of people that were part of a Plymouth Brethren movement, right? Which isn't a, a long-term movement in Christian history. They never wanted to be called a, a denomination. They came out of the Anglican Church, and, they, and, and the idea was communion and other things are being held kind of, it's too professionalized, and so we're not going to have paid ministers, we're going to have speaking elders, all kinds of things. Lay leadership is very important. Uh, education was very important. Understanding scripture was very important. It still is. Really great heritage. One of the things that was part of, of the Brethren movement, or one particular uh, founder or key person early on in the Brethren movement, whose name is John Nelson Darby, was this concept. So this is only a couple hundred years ago. This concept of something called, you ready for it? The rapture. And what John Nelson Darby did was he took some verses in Scripture and he took a particular interpretation of those verses and he said there'll be a time when Christians could be together when, or people could be together and one person just disappears. And when you're growing up as a Christian, a young Christian, and I had my own faith, it wasn't simply the faith of my parents, or, but that still was something that, and I'll use my words wisely here, but I'll say it, could literally be used to scare the hell out of you. The rapture. Someone's going to disappear? I came home one day, and I went to a Baptist church at the time, Delbrook Baptist then, now the bridge. And I think I've told you this before. But I came home one day. My mom had shipped me off to Sunday school, and she didn't go to church. And I came home, or I think it was, anyway, I just, I don't remember the timing of it, but I remember being terrified because I walked into our townhouse, and nobody was home. (laughs) That should be something that doesn't terrify a child. I mean, At least not, oh, I think my mom might have been raptured and I'm still here. 
The rapture is a concept that came up a couple hundred years ago, particularly under the influence of John Nelson Darby, and then spread particularly through Baptist churches. Now, I, now it, I don't want to threaten some things that people might think of as gospel. I don't want to tell you particularly whether I believe the rapture or not, because I don't think it's a fundamental of Christian faith. So, uh, so 1,800 years of Christian history and much of the Christian church today doesn't hold this as a concept. Now, so what you could do is you could say, Mr. Darby has done us a great service by properly interpreting these texts. Fantastic, that's possible. But here's why I'm telling you in terms of what eschatology means. Eschatology will always, whether you believe in certain you know, pre-trib or post-trib or whatever in terms of the end times, eschatology will always say, okay, have those conversations, that's a good thing, and in some ways you might not, we might not talk about that enough. But eschatology is always, always, always more. What it means is where history is headed. The culmination of all history is in the love and salvation of Jesus Christ our Lord. So the book of Revelation, which people often use as that text on end times, right? The book of Revelation first, and I'm not downplaying the other stuff, but the book of Revelation first, before it's ever about the end of the world, it is about the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who stands, who comes early in the book, you know, glowing like fire, his voice like a river rushing. John says, I turned to hear the voice. I turned to see the voice is kind of the language. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. Jesus speaking to the seven churches. Jesus opening the scroll of all history. Eschatology means the completion of all things. It's an eschatological text from Colossians again that says, for it's in Jesus Christ that All things are held together, and in him all things will be reconciled, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Eschatology is always more than the prediction of when Jesus might come back, which, of course, Jesus himself said, nobody knows that, only the Father. Which should be a reminder for you, don't try to figure it out. I read this week, actually, last Sunday in the New York Times, there were... Maybe it was Sunday. There was an article on optimism, or or an editorial on optimism, basically saying, like, uh, we can be too negative. Anyway, um, and it mentioned that in American history, because this is an American writer, uh, we have a strand of of pessimism in us or or thinking that things are always bad. And and then all of a sudden this mention comes of a guy, what's his name? I wrote it down here somewhere. Edgar Wisenat, a NASA engineer. He'd been a NASA engineer, and in 1986 or 87, I suppose, wrote a booklet that sold millions of copies. And the book was called 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988, which sold well until 1988 came to an end. And then he changed it to 1993, and then he changed it to 1994, and that's the last we heard of that, at least I heard of it. I don't want to belittle or downplay the understanding of, of end times in Christian faith. And it is true that, that that maybe had more emphasis in generations past, and we need to recover some of that. But we need to recover it in a way to understand that this is about Jesus Christ, not about predicting dates and times. 
History is completed in Jesus Christ, our Lord. The culmination of all history is in Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be eschatological, that I look at even an event in the world today. It could be even a tragedy. And my faith says to me, that is not the end of all things. This history is headed somewhere. And I do that really respectfully. I don't want to belittle people who suffer actual tragedy, even death, oppression, whatever else it is. But this history is headed somewhere. His love is above all else. And I am to remember this and consider this. I am to be able to say in my own mind, I am an eschatological person. Don't worry, I'm not going to make a t-shirt that says that or anything. But I am, I, am, uh, I am driven by this. I watch the news. I pray for you. And this enters into it, always. Lord Jesus Christ, as I pray for so and so, I pray for them, the circumstances of their lives, how this actually works out. But Lord Jesus, I know what it means in you that all will be made well. Would you bless them? Would you be with them? an eschatological text that we read from Philippians that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And as you take up studies of the end times things, when you have with you that love and presence of Jesus Christ, it becomes life-giving, compelling. One day, one day all sorrow and loss and pain will be gone. All history, the love of Jesus Christ. So I want to finish this morning with a prayer of Thomas Akempis. Thomas Akempis lived in the late 14th and early 15th century. He was actually German, but uh, settled in the Netherlands and became part of a group of people called the Brethren of the Common Life. Uh, these would be people who at the time would be kind of persecuted, even persecuted by the established church because they weren't, you know, mainstream enough at that time. But their focus and their emphasis was on how you actually lived the Christian faith, that this should be something that you know and even feel in terms of how you live each day. And I share with you a prayer uh, as, uh, as we move to our communion. I think it has, the reason I share it is it has some of these elements in it. A prayer of Thomas Akempis. O Lord my God, you are above all things. You hear the language of the ascension in this. You hear the faith of this man. You alone are most good, most powerful, most sufficient, most complete. Complete is an eschatological word in faith. Most sweet and comforting. You alone are most beautiful, most able, and most glorious above all things. In you all goodness is gathered together fully and perfectly, now and forever. I think at this point Thomas gets a bit, um, might stretch it a bit, but anyway, on this next line that I'm going to read. Therefore, whatever you give me beside yourself, O Lord, is small and unsatisfying to me. It doesn't mean that the people in your life that God has blessed you with should be unsatisfying. I don't even think that's what Thomas Akempis is getting at. But compared to the love of Christ, they're just... 
Therefore, whatever you give me besides yourself, O Lord, is small and unsatisfying to me. And now, the, for my heart cannot find rest or find perfect peace until it rises above all your gifts to rest in you alone. May we hear the story of the ascension. May we know that Jesus Christ has been glorified. May we know that he is present with us. May we have this in our minds, our perspective as we look at the world. And may we more and more become an eschatological people. A people who are able to say, yes, but one day. Thanks be to God. Let's pray for our communion. You hear the words right in Scripture, Jesus Christ, who for the glory set before him, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but took on the nature of a servant, took on flesh. You see this in the communion. Took on flesh and became one of us, but became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That we could put our faith in him for what he's done for us, that our lives aren't defined by self, but by something higher, by Jesus Christ and his love. So in taking this communion, you declare your faith in Jesus Christ. This communion is for anybody who knows Jesus or wants to. And if you don't fit those categories, you are no less than any one of us. This is not a table of exclusion, but a table of inclusion. What Jesus has done for the life of the world. His broken body, broken for us, that we would know his life. His blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. We declare our faith in him as we take and eat. So, Heavenly Father, these which are never simply emblems, your body and your blood, Jesus Christ, given for the life of the world, we receive, we put our faith in you, we ask you to help us to reflect your love in this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.